1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we'll go through verse 7. This is what the Word of God has to say. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. After affirming the, the, goodness, and aspire, uh, uh, the goodness of aspiring to the office of overseer in verse 1, Paul immediately moves his attention to the required qualifications of those elevated to the office of overseer. Now, you and I typically have a love-hate relationship with qualifications. On one hand, we rightly desire that those who practice um, those who practice or provide things like health care or other uh, services that are related to our safety and well-being, we want them to be well qualified. When, when you go to your doctor, you're, uh, you're making the assumption that they've they passed medical school and that somebody somewhere has affirmed that they know what they're doing and that they are qualified to perform the task that they're doing for you. But that goes beyond just your doctor. That's, that's true of when you, make a, when you buy an airline, when you buy a plane ticket and you get on an airline, when you walk on the plane, just to your left is the cockpit and you are, are assuming, hoping, guarantee, putting your life in the fact that, that the people that are sitting in the pilot and co-pilot seat have been trained and qualified and somebody has, has, uh, has affirmed the fact that they are qualified, gifted, and skilled enough to operate that plane. And so, so many areas of our lives, we, we are expecting and demanding that people who provide services and do things that are related to our health and well-being are gifted, skilled, and qualified, usually meaning that there's been some licensing or, or, or qualification requirements that they have accomplished in order to do what they've done. And yet, on the other hand, when you personally face qualifications, requirements that restrict something in your life, that, that keep you from doing something that you want to do, your appreciation for the goodness of qualifications drastically wanes. In the current cultural context where personal autonomy is seen as supremely important, any discussion of disqualifying qualifications is, is often seen as offensive, if not outright rejected. However, like the biblical restriction on women from serving as elders, we obey these qualifications not because of cultural acceptance, but out of obedience to the Lord. This is not about the way we feel about them. This is not about our cultural acceptance of them. This is about the church being obedient to the commands of God. And I want to just say from the beginning that the church's well-being, the church's health, the church's effectiveness are greatly affected by the leadership of the church. Maybe even better said, dependent upon the leadership of the church. And if the church fails to, uh, to choose qualified men to serve as overseers, they will soon reap disastrous results. I am convinced that much of the trouble the church is dealing with today is in part due to the fact that we have not taken seriously passages like this that, that tell us what qualifies and what disqualifies those who can serve in the leadership of the church. And so from these seven verses, I want to make these points this morning. Number one, I want to again return to verse one and just make the case that 
overseers. And I'm going to use that word exclusively today. Now, we've talked in the past that the three terms for the office are overseer, elder, and pastor. But in this passage, Paul exclusively uses the word for overseer. So I'm going to do my best to use that word exclusively today, though I'll mention some of the others. But I want to go back to verse 1 and make the case that overseers are essential for the church. The church needs, is required to have, God intends for the church to have overseers. And then secondly, I want to talk about what qualifies men for this labor. And then thirdly, what qualifies them for the calling to that office. I want to make a distinction there. So let's begin again in verse 1, where, where Paul says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Friends, God intends for the church to have overseers. Throughout history, there seems to be a constant pendulum swing between unquestioned authoritative leadership, dictatorship, if you will, or, or, or monarchical rule, and on the other side, attempts to reject all forms of authority. I'll do what I want to. Nobody's in charge of me. In our present day, it seems that the momentum is on the side of rejecting authority. Now, I see this evident in several areas of our societal order. There's probably, there's not probably, there are many other places you could point to, but just here are some, some ones that I observe on a regular basis. Students and parents of students often treat their parents, their, their, their teachers today with, with disrespect and, um, and, and, and disregard for their authority in the classroom. If you don't know that to be true, then just have a conversation with a teacher, an administrator in the schools today. Their stories are abundant of the disrespect that some of you would not have dared to ever utter out of your mouth that are spoken regularly in the classroom today. Law enforcement. Uh, officers are regularly treated with contempt and disrespect. If you don't believe me on that one, then just watch YouTube. But if you don't want to do that, then speak to someone who is in law enforcement. And they'll, their stories are abundant of folks who, just because of the office that they hold, um, they become the subject and the uh, uh, attention of great disrespect. And there is just a common disrespect shown in general today to those who are in high office. Whether that be a political high office or in the church, there, just, there is just a dearth, a diminishment of respect today given to those who hold particular offices. And I think that is a symptom of a cultural dynamic that has moved away from respect for offices and, and, and elevated personal autonomy over obedience and, uh, and deference to those who are in high office. Now, this, seems, this also seems uh, to be seen in how the church responds to and honors the office and those who are overseers of the church. But I want to make the case today, today that God intends for the church to have overseers. And these overseers are, because God intends them for the church to be this way, they are, for the, for, they are good and for the blessing of the church. In other words, as the church receives this office and honors this office, it is for the good and blessing of the church. Now, in one way, this may seem overly simplistic, maybe not even worthy of a point in a sermon to be said, but, but I, I think it's important because it's so fundamentally and foundationally true. The church needs overseers. God intends for the church to have overseers. The church is blessed when they have and honor overseers. Now, a word about the terms I think would be helpful here. You've heard me mention that the three terms for this office are pastor, elder, overseer. The overwhelming majority in Scripture uh, references to this office are actually elder and overseer. Pastor is one of the, the least used. 
And you may ask, well, what's the difference? Is there a, is there a, is there a theological difference? Is there a reason why these terms are used? And the, the answer is yes and no. So the no side is you'll find some passages in Scripture where the, the different terms, elder and overseer, are actually used in the same passage referring to the same office. But I think what is happening here is each of these terms references a different dynamic or element of the office. So elder comes out of the Jewish culture. Synagogues had elders. They were those who sometimes were older, but, but in general were seen as the, the leaders of the, the, the congregation, and it had with it the, the context of respect and honor. You honored and respected the elders. The term overseer comes from the, has its origin in Greek culture. And it, it very much means what it sounds like it means. It's a ruler and one who labored in the context of leadership. And what I think we're getting at here is that elder, using the term elder, points to the honor and respect due to the office. And the use of overseer points to the function and the authority of the office. Sometimes we need to talk about the function, what the overseer does, the authority, the authority and the, and the, and the, the, the ability to exercise that authority in, uh, in the church. And sometimes we need to speak about the honor and respect due to that office, but both of those uh, together. In this passage, Paul exclusively uses the term overseer, pointing to the function and the labor of the office that it has in the church. And I just want to say to you, friends, that the church needs qualifier overseers, qualified overseers, laboring among and exercising their authority for the church. God intends for the church to have overseers. The church needs those who labor as overseers in the church. Added to that, I would say that submission to biblical qualifications, friends, is an issue of submission to God. In an increasingly secularized culture, there is a growing conflict between biblical qualifications and cultural expectations. When I was preaching from chapter 2 on the role of women in the church and the biblical restriction from women serving as the elders, overseers of the church, I recognized that such teaching was in conflict with the cultural norms of the day. And and we said in that, I said in that sermon that we're not here to, to be culturally relevant. We're here to be biblically obedient. And if God restricts his office to men, then we must also restrict his office to men. But I'm saying again, friends, some of you are okay with that, but you're nervous when we get to chapter 3. But we have to have an equal uh, determination to be obedient in chapter 2 as in chapter 3. If God restricts women from the office of elder, we must receive that. And if God puts qualifications on even the men who would serve as elders and overseers, we must be obedient to that as well. At times the church has elevated pragmatism over being faithful to what Scripture teaches in this area. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, we'd be fearful if we, if we required these qualifications that there would be no one to serve. And like in previous sermons I have said, it would be better for this pulpit to be empty than there to be an unqualified elder in it. At times, the church has been more concerned with keeping the peace than requiring overseers to meet the qualifications. Usually this is expressed with, that's going to hurt feelings or that's going to make somebody mad. And I, I would just say to you, friends, I'd be more concerned with the anger of God than the anger of your neighbor. At times, the church has only been concerned with secular leadership models and given little attention to what Scripture requires to overseers. That, I've been in the ministry now a little over 20 years, and when I began ministry, when I began preaching, one of the models that had gained a lot of attention and attraction in the church was to see the pastor as an executive, and like, a, like a corporate CEO, a boss. And the problem with that is what began to be the instructive idea of how the pastor functioned was corporate America, not the Bible. I'm not saying corporate America has nothing to say, but I'm just saying, friends, who we listen to first must be the Word of God. What we, the rule and the qualifications for the offices of the church cannot be in reflection to the world. They must be obedient to the Word of God. If the church is to be obedient to God, then it must honor God's qualifications for those who are called to lead the church. 
And one last thing I would say here about the, the essentialness to the church is that overseers testify to the spiritual health of the church. In the early days of a church's establishment, elders were sometimes appointed. So in Titus chapter 1, we, we see this. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, uh, this, is, this is why I, I left you in Crete, so that you, that, uh, that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So clearly, he was to appoint elders. However, it seems that the more normative way overseers and elders were, was selection, were selected was by the action of the church. This letter, 1 Timothy, is written to Timothy and is instructing him on the qualifications. And there's an assumption here that the, the ones who affirm whether or not these qualifications are met are, are the church, the congregation, the believers in the church. Many of the qualifications that, that Paul indicates in these verses require previous knowledge of the man who is to be an elder. That's the work of the congregation. We testify to these things being true. The calling of a man to be an overseer in the church requires the call and appointment of God. So there's certainly a dynamic of the man saying, I sense God calling me this to, to this office. We see that in Acts chapter 20 where, where it says, be, be, pray careful, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained uh, uh, with his blood. There's a dynamic of the Holy Spirit drawing men to, to serve as overseers, elders, and pastors. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, clearly there's also an element of the man desiring the office. Maybe we shouldn't put men in, in, in the pastoral role and the elder role and the overseer role who don't want to be there. And Paul says it's a man's aspiration and desire for the office are good because it's a noble task. But certainly the third element here would be the church's affirmation that the man meets the qualifications. Paul gives these qualifications. Who affirms that these qualifications are met? Is it not the congregation of which the man will lead? The affirmation of the church is a vetting and a screening process where the man who senses God's call and aspires to the office is judged by the church as to whether or not he meets the required qualifications. Now, friends, listen to me carefully here. Who the church sets apart to serve as overseer testifies to the spiritual health of the church. You bear testimony to what you believe. You bear testimony to what you find eternally important by who you select, who you affirm is to be an overseer of the church. It testifies to the church's obedience to God's word. Does the church choose overseers according to the commands of Scripture, or does the church choose overseers according to other metrics like cultural acceptance or entertainment value or the ability to draw a crowd? I'm not saying there's not a temptation here. I'm just saying, dear friends, it's a testimony here. There's always a temptation to find someone who can draw a crowd, even if they're a little fuzzy in their theology. There's always a, a temptation here to draw someone here that's, that's culturally acceptable, even though they're not biblically qualified. There's always a temptation to bow to cultural or, or, or communal needs or desires rather than biblical qualifications. But friends, it's a testimony of the church that testifies to your obedience to God's Word when you only call those to be overseers who are qualified biblically to be overseers. It testifies to the church's seriousness and honor for the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. And selecting an overseer is one of the most significant issues the man's knowledge of and ability to teach God's Word. Is, is, it, is it concerned with his doctrinal integrity or something else? I want to just share with you a sad reality. Amongst all of my preacher friends, maybe one, maybe two, probably less than two, I can think of any conversation I've had with them where the church and the pastor had conflict over theological issues. I had a conversation two weeks ago with a man, and he, and he, he connect, connected with me because his church is struggling with their pastor. And right out of his mouth, he said, no, we don't have any problem with what he's preaching. In fact, he said, I think he's, he's faithfully preaching the word. And I said back to him, then what's your problem? 
What his problem is, is that the church is more concerned with non-biblical things than biblical things. It's not a problem for his church alone. Many of us struggle that way. Who you choose as your overseer testifies to the church's seriousness and honor for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If you love God's Word, when your overseer faithfully preaches God's Word, you'll love the overseer too. Not because he's pretty, not because he, he communicates with the with finesse of greater speakers, but because he's faithful to the Word of God. And it testifies to the church's commitment to the gospel and their testimony in the community. If you ignore sin in the life of an overseer, it communicates to the community around you that sin isn't really a big deal or a concern. If you elevate someone to the highest office in the church that has unrepentant sin in their life, then what witness do you have in the community about their sin? Brothers and sisters of the church, the fruit of unqualified men overseeing the church will not bless you. It'll bring destruction, it'll bring heartache and pain, but it will not bless you. That's verse one. Now moving into verse two and three, Paul then gives some qualifications for the labor. These are qualifications for doing the task of an overseer. Now, I just have two points here, but they're rather thick. So I'm going to move pretty quickly, as quick as I can, just to cover a lot of ground this morning. So the first, he gives seven requirements, and then he moves to some disqualifiers or some restrictions. So let's begin first with the requirements. And first he says that overseers, therefore, in verse 2, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. The struggle with rightly understanding the qualifications is avoiding two eras here. On one side, there is an era of legalistic perfectionism. So demanding and commanding that anyone who's to be an elder must be legalistically perf perfect in all of their ways and meeting these qualifications. The other extreme, and I think era, is to give in to cultural relativism. So to really abandon the biblical model and just sort of apply a, a cultural standard. Those who approach this with legal, legalism will discover, if they're honest, that no one perfectly meets every qualification. So if you're going to be legalistically perfected, perfectionist in your demand for your overseers, you won't have an overseer. <laughs> or you're going to have a liar as one. And on the flip side of that, those who are given to cultural relativism will explain away or simply ignore the biblical requirements so much that they have no bearing on the ones given the authority to be an overseer. So what does he mean by be above reproach? Does it mean that, that the overseer is without any sin? That can't be that because there's no such thing. To be above reproach is not a requirement to be perfect. This would mean that the only one who met the requirement would be Jesus. It is to be above reproach is a requirement that, that the man who is to be an overseer lives free of unconfessed sin. In other words, he repents when he sins. He seeks forgiveness when needed. He does not allow rebellious sin to remain unconfronted in his life. He lives above reproach. There may be things in his life that are not perfect, but he is living before the Lord in humility, repentance, and, and, and humble life before the Lord. And so there's no unrepentant sin in his life that brings reproach upon him or the gospel. And then Paul says he is to be a husband of one wife. Out of all the requirements and out of all the restrictions, this probably is the one that creates the most heartburn and probably the most controversy. So I, wanna, I want to give a couple of hermeneutic principles and talk about what it doesn't mean and, and what it could mean and what it does mean. Hermeneutic principles. Those are just hermeneutics is the way or how you interpret Scripture. And there's two principles here that I think are helpful. Number one, the simplest reading is usually the best reading. You go to seminary, get your Ph.D. And, your, and, and great degrees in theology, and I'm telling you still, the best reading when you read Scripture and how to understand it is generally the easiest, most simplest reading. 
you've got to do a lot of gymnastics and explanations of why the passage doesn't mean what it seems to mean, you're generally getting in some deep order that it's not, not healthy. So the simplistic reading, the simple reading is generally the best reading. And secondly, we must interpret Scripture by Scripture. So when, you're going to hear me say this does not mean such and such. And when I say that, I'm able to say it because of other passages in Scripture. So simplistic reading is generally the best. We interpret Scripture according to Scripture. So what does it not say? This is not a, this is not a requirement of marriage or restriction against those who have never been married. So to be an overseer in the church does not mean that you must marry. And it's not a restriction against those who have never married. How do I say that? Well, I say that because Paul encourages those who were gifted with singleness to remain single. And so 1 Corinthians 7, elevated as something positive and good and God-honoring, Paul says, I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul was single, serving as an overseer in the church indeed. And certainly not a restriction against those who have been widowed and remarried. So the New Testament is clear that the covenant of marriage lasts until death. You're going to hear me say a lot here that it is an issue of the remarriage is the issue. So, but it's not against someone who is a widow or widower and then has remarried because the New Testament says the covenant of marriage is from uh, until death, meaning that those who are widowed and remarry are not married to more than one because at the death of their spouse, the covenant with that spouse ended. Just some passages here that I would point you to. Romans chapter 7 says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives? Speaking of marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 again, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And when she does, or when he does, he is not, or she is not then married to two. She's only married to one because the first covenant had ended. So what does this qualification say? At the most basic, and I'm going to say more than this, but at the most basic, it certainly excludes polygamists. Can we agree on that? It is certainly not saying less than this. Excludes all those who are married to more than one person. And certainly it excludes all those who are guilty of uh, of marital unfaithfulness. But the real question that you're asking right now and that many others are asking is, what about divorce and remarriage? Well, that has its relationship to polygamy from a biblical point of view because the Bible says what God joins together, no man can separate. So one of the arguments for allowing those who have been divorced and remarried to be overseers is is if their divorces were permitted by Scripture. And if you're in the room today and you've walked through divorce in your life, then you're probably very familiar with these passages. You've struggled with them and worked through them on your own. Uh, In Matthew chapter uh, 5, Uh, There is a permission there for divorce when one of the spouse has unconfessed, um, continual sexual sin against their their spouse. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is probably where we find the most instruction on divorce, marriage, and remarriage in the church, Paul gives permission that when two unbelieving, uh, when an unbelieving husband and wife, one of them becomes saved, is converted, and the unconverted spouse does not want to remain in the marriage. Paul says they are free and unbound. And one of the arguments for allowing overseers who have been divorced and then remarried uh, to serve as overseers is the argument that that that, that, that adding a requirement for no divorce, even if biblically permitted, to overseers is expecting a standard that is higher than a regular church member. Now, I appreciate that argument, but I do think, friends, that those who serve as overseers 
are expected to live at a higher standard than church members. Three issues that I think inform how the church should think on this issue. First, it is an issue of divorce and remarriage. That's the issue. It's the remarriage part. So you may say to me, I was biblically permitted to divorce my spouse. And I may agree with you. But then the question is, if you are to be qualified to serve as an overseer, you must wrestle with the fact, are you permitted then to remarry? Secondly, marriage is a testimony to the gospel ordained by God, and it cannot be annulled by the will of man or the command of law. Thus, this is indeed a high standard, much higher than the world around us recognizes. Meaning, you have to wrestle with the fact, if you've not been permitted to divorce, or even if you have, if you remarry, are you still bound before the Lord to your first spouse? And third, I think this is an issue of testimony for the church. This is a hard one. Even if the divorce is biblically permitted, it still may have a negative testimony on the church. Meaning, if we were together and have a council together and we, we talked all the details of, of your life and, and affirmed with you that, yes, you were permitted to divorce and maybe we all even agree that you were permitted to remarry, the reality of it is that, that the details and the specifics of that may not be well communicated in the community. And elevating someone like that to the office of overseer may have the testimony to the community that divorce doesn't matter to the church. And like so many other areas in our life where we may be free biblically to do something, but we restrict ourselves for the testimony to others, I think that applies here as well. While there is room for different understandings among different churches on this issue, the local congregation must seriously wrestle with the qualifications of elders, particularly in this area, and come to an agreement. Then Paul says he must be sober-minded. The word there means pertaining to behaving in a sober or restrained manner. I would use the word serious Overseer is not a silly person. I don't mean they can't ever laugh, they can't have a light heart. That wouldn't be very fun at all. Wouldn't be very enjoyable to be around. But, but, but dealing and, and laboring as an overseer requires some very heavy things. It requires some very hard work. And like your, your physician or, or, or somebody who's dealing with you in a very intimate way, you want them serious about their work. You want your overseer to be sober-minded, clear-minded, self-mastery over their mind and their life. Added to this, he says, self-control. The, the word there means to pertaining to being sensible and moderate in one's behavior, sensible or, or even a modesty there. But the idea there is that they are in control of their emotions and their, of their, uh, their life. Respectable means pertaining to be modest in a sense of to be moderate or, or well-ordered. It's living in an honorable and respectable manner. Not offensive, not vulgar, not out of control. He has to be hospitable. The word there means showing hospitality. And it's interesting specifically to strangers. The focus of this word is kindness towards strangers. And I think it carries with it the meaning of being willing to give of oneself to others in need. If you're going to serve as an overseer of the church, there are many things that most people enjoy as private concerns that you don't get to enjoy anymore. My schedule is very, very seldom my own. Calls and requests come in at various times. And, and there's just a reality. If you're going to be an overseer, you're going to give of yourself to others. Then he says, able to teach. Now here's a qualification that I, I want to take another closer look. Because I think this one may have been more often overlooked than it should have been. This is the first qualification related to the labor of an elder. What does he do? What does his labor consist of? 
being able to teach carries a double requirement. It requires that you be knowledgeable of the word. And secondly, it, it has this idea of being able to be able to communicate your knowledge of the word. We have seen some who are brilliant, gifted communicators, but they don't know the word. You ever been somewhere, somebody was preaching and you said, man, he was sure saying it nice, but he just didn't have anything to say? That's someone who can communicate, but doesn't have anything to communicate. Able to teach means that you know the word and you can communicate the word. The primary labor of an overseer is teaching and preaching God's word. No one should be given the responsibility of overseeing God's church that does not know God's truth and cannot teach God's truth. I mean, that's just foundational, friends. It's foundational. Before man can be set apart as an overseer, these seven requirements must be well-established and well-observed in the man. You don't grow into these. These must be already demonstrated before he's elevated as an overseer. Then Paul gives some restrictions. In verse 3, Paul lists some disqualifiers. All of them are related, their disqualifications are related to the, the, the requirements that he'd already just laid out. He says that an overseer is not to be a drunkard. Now, drunkenness is a sign of lack of self-control. Now, the debate about whether or not you can consume alcohol or not is a separate debate to this. But this is clearly, I mean, the, the hermeneutic principle here, the simplest reading is the best reading. Friends, drunkenness is a sin. And a man who is given to that sin without repentance cannot serve as an elder. Not to mention the fact that it's evidence in his life that there's uncontrolled uh, lack of self-control in his life. I would just read to you Ephesians chapter 5 where it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Then he says, Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. I put all of those together. The word violent there means a person who is pugnacious and demanding, somebody who wants to fight, looking for a fight, a bully. Gentle, the word there means pertaining to being gracious and forbearing, long-suffering, if you will. And the word quarrelsome there, the word uh, is frequently used for the physical combat in the military sense or in a sporting contest. In general, the sense of conflict, love for battle, whether it be physical or with words. Now, I want to be careful. This is not a requirement that overseers shrink from battle. If you just think about Paul, so much of his letters, and he references in his letters, he's going to confront sin in the church and deal with it, oftentimes harshly. So an overseer is not to be someone who can't speak hard things. It's not to be someone who, who, who shrinks away from difficulty or a, or a fight. But this is, but it is a restriction against those who create conflict and strife for wicked purposes. It is a restriction against those who cannot control their anger. Listen, anger is always dangerous emotion because it, it often leads to, a, uh, to an uncontrolled words being spoken or, or spoken or action. If the character of a man is that he is often given to outbursts of uncontrolled anger, he is by definition disqualified from being an overseer. And then Paul says, not a lover of money. The office of overseer has great authority and responsibility and therefore requires tremendous amounts of trust. Paul will warn letter in this letter that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He says in chapter 6, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. He'll also deal with double honoring the overseer. So it's not about the amount an overseer receives for his labor, but it is an issue of that the overseer must not be, must be, be ruled by his love for the Lord and the advancement of the kingdom and not controlled by a love of money. I want to say again to you, friends, that when the church overlooks or ignores these disqualifying characteristics, it entrusts its well-being to destructive and dangerous leaders. Qualifications for overseers, qualifications for the labor. Lastly, I want us to think about the qualifications for the calling. 
in verse 4 through, the, uh, through verse 7, Paul says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, he will not, he will, he will, uh, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he will become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. I just want to follow these three things that Paul lays out in this passage. And number one, that an overseer must demonstrate and be demonstrating good management and all those things that God has put under his care. Verse 4 indicates that an overseer must manage his family well. Again, I think it's helpful to define what this qualification does not require as we consider what it does require. This is not a requirement or a demand to be married or to have children. In other words, so some have said, well, because an overseer must manage his household well, he must have a household with children. As I discussed earlier, there's no biblical command to marry. And in the, the New Testament, it recognizes that some are gifted with singleness. And clearly, because Paul was single, he had no children, no spouse. And this was not a, a, a disqualifier for him. And it's not a demand for perfect children. Somebody breathe a sigh of relief. Whew, I heard that. You know why I heard that? Because I have felt it as well. One of the ways an overseer is to labor among the church is to exercise church discipline. Church discipline is required when a church member is living in sin. Overseers are not disqualified when a church member sins. If that were true, then there would be no overseers. Therefore, if an overseer, an overseer is not disqualified when one of his church members sins, who he is, uh, who he's called to manage well, neither is he disqualified when the member of his family sins. It is a demand that the overseer manage his household for the glory of God. Good management is not is not testified to perfection. But good management requires that you be engaged for the glory of God and manage well what God's given you. So practicing godly discipline within the home, not permitting unrestrained wickedness or rebellion within his home, leading his family to know and love the gospel. Before elevating to the office of overseer, a man must demonstrate good management of what has already been entrusted to him. You don't put somebody in charge that you hope can do the work. You put somebody in charge who's already demonstrated in other areas of their life that they are capable of doing the work. Secondly, here Paul says, it says that there should be a demonstration of faithfulness over time. Verse 6, he says, don't put a new convert. Don't elevate a new convert as an overseer. Now, in almost every area of our life, it's easy to start something with zeal and passion. And if you're a new believer today, we're excited about the fact that you're passionate about the gospel. I, I, one of the things I love to do is sit down with new believers and have conversations about the Bible. And they're oftentimes just pushing hard and passionate and zealous. We want to get this as perfect and as right as we can. And I glory in that. The true test of faithfulness, though, is not how passionate and zealous you are on day one. Is that when troubles and hardships come, will you persevere in faithfulness? Verse 6 is not a diminishment of new believers. Hear me carefully. If you're a new believer today, this is not a diminishment of your faith, your, 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 your blessing to the congregation. No, what, what verse 6 is, is a recognition that when you're new in the faith, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know areas of sin that will be struggles for you. You don't know areas of pride that will cause uh, issues of arrogance for you. You don't know whether or not that how you'll respond when troubles come and discouragement comes. Those who are new in faith are often the more zealous to lead and to teach. They want it. They desire it. They're confident in their ability to tell you what they know. Opportunities should be provided for men who are new believers to grow in faith and develop skill in teaching God's Word and, 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 and church leadership. However, the church would be wise to obey God's commands. 
to allow time for new believers to give evidence of their character and faith before elevating them to the office of overseer. And then lastly, Paul says there should be a honorable testimony. He says in verse 7, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Friends, we're not isolated and insulated from the world. The church is to be a light in the darkness and a witness to the watching world. We are to be a testimony to the community around us, watching us. And by the way, they're not necessarily watching us on Sunday morning. They're watching you Monday through Saturday. How do you live? How do you function? How do you speak about the church? How do you speak about those who God has placed an overseer over you? How do you respond to the word? That's the testimony we're bearing in the community. I think Paul is saying here that overseers must have an honorable testimony with those outside the church. Now, this does not mean that those outside the church will like what the overseer preaches or how he lives. I will remind you that Paul, who is writing these words, was run out of most of the towns that he preached in. Sometimes he was jailed. Sometimes he was beaten. One time he was stoned, left for dead because they hated what he preached. So it can't mean here that the overseer is celebrated in the community, because sometimes the community is going to hate the overseer because of what he preaches. I think what it means is as far as it depends on the man, his testimony in the community should be that he is trustworthy, he's a speaker of truth, he's honest, he's kind and gracious, that he speaks without vulgarity, and curses, and that he is faithful to his spouse, that he has an honorable testimony in the community. I've been thinking this week how to illustrate to you the importance of choosing qualified men to be overseers in the church. So to that end, I want you to imagine with me that after our services today, I take out my truck keys from my pocket and I, I give it to one of our eight-year-old kids. And I say, listen now, I, I, pack in, I park in the back of the church. I want you to take my truck keys and I want you to drive my truck around to the front of the church. And maybe, maybe this eight-year-old says to me, Pastor, I don't know how to drive. My legs won't reach the pedals and I can't see over the dash. And imagine I just say to that little one, oh, listen, I have nothing but confidence in you. you can, if you try, you can do it. I know you'll do it. And so their pastor has asked them to do something. They want to be respectful. And so they take my keys and they run to the back of the church and they get in my truck. Now, when they get in my truck, they realize they indeed can't reach the pedals they can't really see over the dash. They've never driven a vehicle before, but Pastor Ben told them they could do it, and so they're going to do their very best. They crank that truck up, and they put it in gear. Do you know what happens next? You better hope you're not parked next to me today. Because between there and here, they're going to run into all kinds of cars. They're probably going to bump the building a few times. They're going to take out some of the bushes and the landscaping. We're just going to pray they don't run anybody over, Right? And that they're safe. But let's imagine, other than uh, denting and bruising and scraping cars and landscape and building, that they make it all the way around the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the building and they park right here and somehow they, they get it in park and they, they, they come in and now they are visibly upset. Because they know you're going to be upset that they, they dented your car. And they, they think the church is going to be upset with them because they've damaged the building and harmed the landscaping. They think I'm going to be mad with them because my truck is clearly damaged now. And they come down and they hand me the keys and they're crying and they say, Oh, Pastor Ben, we tried. We really tried. But we hit all these cars and we messed up this and that and I'm just so sorry. Now, listen to me carefully. You'll understand this. The eight-year-old may be crying but I'm the one at fault. Do you know why? Because I entrusted with them something that they were not qualified to do. 
I was, and, and I would even say to you, it's unkind. It would be unkind to do that because asking them to drive a car that they were unqualified to do set them up for failure. And so they're being upset and all the damage that they may have done wouldn't be their fault. It'd be my fault because I entrusted to them something that I should not and I knew better than to entrust with them. Friends, when you elevate those to serve as overseer that are unqualified, I think it's like giving eight-year-old keys. It's unkind to them and it, it produces destruction. Not because they're not trying hard, not because they don't have good intentions, not because you're not confident and encouraging in them, but because they're not qualified to do the work and the labor that they've been elevated to. For the kindness to those who would serve in this office, for the blessing of the church, and for the gospel testimony we bear in the community, and the testimony to our obedience to the word of God, we must hold fast to God's qualifications for those who would be overseers. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.